Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. Travis Alabanza is an electrifying talent and one of the most prominent and emergent queer voices in the crossover of arts and politics. They're also a wonderful conversation partner. Among much else, Travis and I discuss the overlapping oppressions of trans and black bodies, the role of performance and survival, and why they sometimes lean into parodies of themselves when navigating white institutions. You know, I told Travis that I was nervous to be in conversation with them because they are so well accomplished. And Travis replied that before their performances, they sometimes ask people to to mention something other than their bio because it makes them nervous too. So this got me to thinking about what we say about ourselves and other people and the role someone else's accomplishments can play in the validation of ourselves and our work. Yes, I am reading myself. <laughs> Travis has performed at the Tate, had their poetry published on highly regarded platforms, and tours their work internationally, but their work runs deeper than the places they perform because their work comes from a place of searing honesty. And that is powerful, and that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Travis Alabanza. Black bones in cycles Recycling past trauma Retching it back up through tired throats And scratched breaths for the same conversation Black bones in cycles Recycling past trauma Retching it back up through tired throats And scratched breaths for the same conversation And a white woman asks me if I'm okay And I continue to read my poem Waxing over black death and pain Only stopping to catch a breath And wondering if it's my uncle's Last time I did this A white woman cried of guilt and left Before I could offer her my PayPal account And a black friend asked me if I'm okay And I broke down in tears Crumbled into tired bones Mounts on past aggressors Unprocessed tears Washing over tired eyes And I wonder what about the black body Has become so accustomed To hiding the function of our pain Mastered ways of hidden nods, fist bumps, hush glances, speaking years of silence. That a thank you to a bus driver can mean just that. Or in our hidden tongues, softly whispers, hang in there brother, another day will come and I don't know when it'll be coming, but we both know a thank you is not enough. And a Ghanaian woman complimented me on my head wrap whilst I was walking along the street. She said I look nice, but I heard we will get each other through the day. She said nice, but I heard we were willing each other to survive. And I wonder, I wonder if as we reuse our horrors like Hamley Downs pass through family lines that the colours start to run less. As if with each cycle we come further away from crying our own tears, with every record scratched onto our speakers, our voices become more muffled. So you ask me what it is like to be black. You asked me what it is like to be black and queer, to be black and queer and trans and black and poor and black and femme and black and a freak and black and a tranny and black and strong and black and weak and black and touched and black and grabbed and black and felt and black and thrown chicken burgers out in the street and you asked me what it feels like to wake up with the same pain that I sleep in. 
and not to wash and to be in cycles and to be black and to get back up and to be black and to fall and to be black and to get back up and to be black and to fall and to be black and to get back up and to be black and to fall and to be black and to get back up and to be black and to be pushed so you ask me what it feels like to be black queer and trans i pause i nod I recycle some phrase referencing an academic that both of us will never read. And I move on to the next question. (laughs) (laughs) I find myself holding my breath when I watch you perform. Mm. It was really beautiful being able to do that, just to one person. I feel very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I feel very lucky. God. I don't even know where to be in this conversation because I am in such adoration of you, right? I, I look at you and I see so much. Mm-hmm. I see so much beauty. I see potential. I see, yeah, just, yeah, I admire you a great deal. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, I know where I want to start, actually. I want to start, I, I saw you speak at Queen Mary's. I think it was last December. Mm-hmm which was shortly after what we'll call the event. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you were so warm um, to me, and you gave me a big hug afterwards. But at at the beginning of that um, talk, um, you situated yourself in the moment and in front of all of us, and you said that you were nervous. Mm. And so I want to do that now. I want us to situate ourselves in this moment. Um, How are you feeling? Um, I don't feel nervous right now. Um, I feel really great that I've carved time out of my schedule to have a one-on-one chat with someone. I'm very tired as well, but simultaneously like, okay, I'm okay. Mm. Yeah. Just a strong okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But no nerves, which is really nice. It's nice to be somewhere where I'm not nervous. I'm always so nervous out of these conversations because I never know where to start, Mm -hmm. right? And also the you're someone who is so accomplished, I think. You know, if you look at your bio, if you look at your body of work, I mean, it's it's prodigious already and you're so young. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've started doing this thing now where uh, at events that they introduce me, I'm like, hey, let's scrap the bio and, and, and say something else. Let's say something that you, your connection to me or why I'm here or some other thing. Because sometimes when I hear the bio, it scares me too. <laughs> I'm like, damn, I'm 20 fucking free. Am I not to swear on this? Yes. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I'm really young. And I think it's only in the last six months, I wouldn't say in December, so maybe from February, I don't know if that's six months, it's probably a bit less, that I've kind of dipped my head out of the, the, the headlights that I think I've been in for the past three years. You know, I think I'm only just starting to realize where I'm at. And obviously I have so much more that I want to accomplish. But I think in the last two and a half, three years, I haven't had a moment to really sit and be like, oh, this is like where my life is at. Wow. Mm. I'm I'm not just performing in my bedroom to no one anymore. Right, yeah. Um, and it seems so weird because to so many of my friends are like, Travis, you've been killing it for like a while. We've been seeing you. And it's like only really in the last six months have I been able to sit back and appreciate people around me properly and myself properly for what's been happening surrounding my life in the last three years. And was there something that made you take that step back and kind of step above the headlights, as it were? A holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, multiple things, mainly a holiday. Uh, That was really great. But also I was going back to places that I had been exactly a year ago or exactly two years ago. And that forced me to realize how different the experience was. You know, oh, last time I was here, I was in the audience. Or, oh, last time I was here, nobody stopped me and said, I have your book. And this time a hundred people have stopped me in like the space of 10 minutes right. or this time last year I was worrying about my next paycheck and this time this year I'm lucky enough that I can pay for my therapy. All these kind of things that are like checkpoints where I'm like, okay, Travis, you need to like be real about yourself. And I think sometimes we um we avoid the check-in because it forces us actually to reshift where our privileges are. And we all, you know, hate having to do that. And I think actually I was thinking like oh it's good that I'm not being aware of where I'm at because that means I'm going to stay grounded but actually I think 
for me now I'm learning that being grounded is being fully aware of where you're situated, mm. knowing it, knowing what you need to change because of that and then continuing, you know? Mm. I'm thinking about how not making time to check in with ourselves keeps us from that groundedness, but mm. also keeps us from that celebration of the progress that we are making, Real. right? Well, and I wasn't really celebrating myself mm. for fear of lots of things, for fear of coming across cocky, for fear of coming across arrogant, um, for not wanting it to end, worrying that celebrating it would mean that I would stop. And also maybe because I was still talking about the same things that I was talking about two years ago in the same way. And recently in the last six months, checking in with myself, I'm, I'm going into like kind of a career. It's, it's nice being able to do these kind of things. And this summer has been full of being able to sit down and have these kind of things because I'm going for a bit of a, a transition moment. Um, and it was really important in that transition moment to be like, okay, you're still talking about similar things, but you have to be aware that when you started talking about this, it was coming from an anger of no one listening to you. Mm. And now actually in relation to some of the other people in your community that you're talking for, you're very listened to. And so would you say that l being listened to is how you measure your work and your impact? No, or is there some other- No, definitely not. It's how I think it was important for me to measure certain privileges. So, so, so being listened to is something that I was never accustomed to growing up and at the beginning of my career was definitely fighting to have. It's definitely not how I measure my impact. Um, I think it's sometimes dangerously how we try and measure our impact. Mm. But um, no, I, I think actually, I try, if I'm honest, I try not to measure my impact. Um, when I think too much about who might be hearing my work, my work becomes inauthentic and I think what I love about what I've been doing is that it's always honest. Mm. And that's because really, like everyone always asks like, oh, are you making work for this community? Are you making work for these people? And I know the like right answer, inverted commas, is to be like, yeah, and when I'm making this work, I'm sitting down and I'm thinking about my queer and trans people of color and da 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 da. But actually like, if I'm really honest, when I'm making work, when I'm writing these things, I'm thinking about myself. Mm. I, I, I'm thinking about what I want to hear. and. I realize that that's the best method for me because then naturally people connect with it and it's authentic. So I try not when I'm sitting down and writing and making work and going to an appearance to think too much about, is this person here in the room hearing this? Is that here? Because then I get too caught up in what I think they may or may not want to hear. And then actually I think to push the politic further, we have to be honest. Yeah, that honesty is something I'm trying to confront a bit more mm -hmm. in my own life. It's scary. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I don't think, I, you know, I don't think we're raised as, as a society, nor as individuals, particularly queer black individuals, to confront who we are Definitely. in any substantive way. And so I think these kind of evolutions that we make, mm -hmm. and there are several evolutions mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. our queer black lives, I think. Um, I think honesty for me has been that biggest evolution, has been to say, you know what, there's a facade here. I'm gonna, one, admit to the facade, mm -hmm. and two, I'm gonna actively work to dismantle it. Right, and to still see when it's useful, mm. right? Because <laughs> that facade that we had was definitely built by survival. It was definitely built so we could get through. And hey, when I'm in a room full of Susans and Rebecca's, I'm pulling on so many. I'm not going to give them my honesty there, you know? Uh, I don't need to give anyone my honesty over time. Oh, that's interesting. A, you know, that's but it's very about knowing when, and it's being aware. How do you know when then? Um, I think it's when I feel safe. Right. But it's also about, or sometimes it's about safety. So there's times when I've actually not been safe, to be honest, but I knew that I needed to be in that moment, so I did. But there's other times, you know, like, if I was honest all the time, I think we would, I would walk around constantly deflated and exhausted, you know? And if I've got six, seven meetings in a day, sometimes they're gonna get like the CEO, Travis, that walks in and is like, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, two sugars with my tea, thank you. Yes, I'm so happy to be here, da 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 All that vibe, you know? But it's about knowing when that's happening and knowing when actually right in my work, when I'm going to the page, I don't want a facade. I don't want to think about my objective. I just want to like write, or I just want to speak, you know. I'm curious about your body of work and about, and we'll start with the pain in the work, right? Mm -hmm. Because so much of your work comes from this place of yeah. survival. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what it feels like to you to have to revisit mm. this work when you perform it. It depends how many times I've performed it that week. 
And now in my sets and in my shows, I'm, I'm lucky now that I'm, you know, being able to just do like hour shows or whatever. I have my, my work and then I have like 25 minutes of improv and stand up and comedy and just like current conversational talk. And that has really changed the way I'm looking at my shows. And it was originally put in as a self-care method. I was like, damn, I can't keep on going around doing this pain, pain, pain. And no one's seeing that I'm like, also can kind of sometimes be funny or sometimes I can be weird or I want to talk about this or I want to talk about that. And for me, that was a way of being like, I can't keep on reading this. Like, you know, some days I was performing six, seven times a week and I was like, whew, like everyone else is hearing this for the first time. Mm. And I can't fake it with performance, you know? But then I also have little techniques that I do. Like for example, in the poem we opened with, it's a really painful poem for me. It's a really exhausting poem for me. But also in there, there's like performance techniques that I find really exciting. Like the repetition and the speeding up. Mm. So sometimes if I don't feel like getting sad, I'll like hone in on the technique that I'm using right, right on and get enjoyment off of that to be like, oh, I couldn't do this four years ago. Hey, look at this flow, <laughs> right? So then sometimes I like, I, I know the words and I hone in on like the performance element to make it feel exciting for me to do in that moment. What brings you joy? I know that's really random. Yeah, I know. Like, you know, segue, but I... My friends, mm. you know, like really, truly, I love seeing my friends succeed and be happy. I love being silly with my friends. Um, I love making like little improvs with my friends and just being... I live with um, three beautiful, gorgeous black facts and... Last night, we went to an art gallery exhibition opening and we were just the silliest people in the room. Like, we were just cracking joke non-stop, reading each other to filth. And I was like, oh, this is joy. Mm -hmm. Like, this is joyful. I feel um, really free in that. Um, and, you know, actually being on stage for me is a real joy. Not all the time. Not like every single time. But a lot of the time... Just that little moment where I pause in the middle of a show and I see the people and I'm like, oh, I'm doing this. This is really freeing. And I think on stage is the place where so many of us can be who we wanted to be on the streets. So for me... Wow. Say that again. Us, um, being on stage for me is, is where so many of us are who we want to be on the streets but can't. Mm. So I have like joyous moments on stage because it's funny because people say, oh, you're performing on stage. And I'm like, am I not performing off the stage? And actually this is the realest thing you've seen. I, I said in my show the other day, I was like, we're gonna go away and the reviewers are gonna say that I was performing and you were the audience, but I think it's the other way around. And I genuinely believe that. So on stage, a lot of the time I feel joyful. And, and, I, and I, I really dispute the idea that the stage is where we're pretending when we're in make-believe. Maybe mm. that's for some people. Sure. Uh, but actually, for me, it's the opposite. The, this idea that on the stage is the people we want to be in the streets. Mm. I just... That's... Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, I think... I go outside and I see all these people performing. I see all these people performing things that they think they want to be, performing that they're not lonely, performing that they're not sad, performing that they're not manic, performing that they have their shit together. And I think sometimes when I see brilliant performers on stage, what they're really doing is actually just being honest with the fact that they don't have their shit together, that they're sad, that they're lonely. And I think stage is really interesting because we have a space where we can do that. That's why I love I love the stage. I suppose there's a permission attached to the stage yes. that isn't on yes. the streets. We're like, oh, we're allowing this person to be sad because they're on stage. We're allowing this person to voice all their hurt and we're going to applaud them. It's probably the only place I see people ever celebrate people being sad and crying. We're like, wow, what a like honest and amazing, mm. inspirational mm. performance. They were crying. But if someone in the office outside where we are, we're at now started crying in the middle of a job, it would be seen as a nuisance. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, please uh, keep it together. Yeah, yeah, like get your shit together. <laughs> but on stage, we're like, oh, amazing, unraveling. And I'm like, oh, damn. You know, I wish everywhere was as welcoming as the But is there not a performative nature to that? Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's, it's, it's ostensibly a transaction still. Still right. a transaction and, you know, sometimes feels more of a performance than others. But I think for me, and, you know, I can only speak for my technique. For me, I know I'm giving my best show when it's not feeling like a show to me. 
when like the words are just feeling like a therapy session. When I'm going out and I'm like, wow, that was like the most honest I've been. And some of my friends, you know, you know, that's why I've kind of stopped close friends coming to like a lot of my shows to support me. I only get them to come to shows when they really want to. I, I, I've, I leave them backstage with my dressing room drinks and I get asked them not to watch the show because out comes all this stuff that I'm like, actually, I'm not ready for you to see that. And my friends are always like, it's so confusing because I'll watch a show of yours and I'll understand how you're doing more than when you're talking to me outside. Wow. And I'm like, damn, I really need to work on that. But <laughs> but but it's true. I think I get overcome with where I'm at, you know, and I, especially now as, as my performances are getting more and more honed in and I'm having more practice. The thing I'm needing to learn now more is how to self-control because I'm quite a manic person. And I think that um, I've dealt with mania for, for a lot of my life. And I think I contain it. And then on stage, it's like, what? Right. And sometimes the hour afterwards, I'm like a bit unhinged because I'm like, oh, I just did that, you know. Uh, especially recently with like the responses I get now are so much bigger from the audiences than before. I'm getting kind of hooked to it in a weird way. Right. <laughs> so I have to kind of, yeah, it's something I'm trying to look, look at, monitor a bit. Do you find validation on the stage? Yeah, I've been, I'm, I've been not practicing honesty if I said no. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think... Yeah, yeah, straight up. Actually, like, I I love watching people enjoy the work because I still get really nervous every time I perform. Every time. It's really funny, like, my, my I was at Latitude Festival performing on quite a big stage and two hours before, my friend was like, what's up? I was like, I don't think I can do this. They're like, what? I was like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm, I don't think I'm any good. I'm awful. Um, what people have been lying to me? Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. And my friend was like, Travis do I need to list off where you've been in the past three months? And I was like, no, it's not going to help. Like, da, da 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 And then I went on still with that feeling. And then five minutes in, I remembered I was like, oh no, people are okay with my shit. And I was like, it's so interesting because I knew what I was saying wasn't true. But I still get into a phase before I perform. Sometimes I get into a really deep spiral where I'm like, I'm rubbish and this is going to flop. But I think for that makes me go out every time like I'm just gonna have to like so your only way over that is through it yeah I'm like well there's no option to cancel right now because I'm going on in two hours <laughs> uh, you know and, and, and there has been times when it's flopped a bit but I've never really had a true flop moment but what would a flop moment look like just like the audience being like not there right Um, you know no engagement at this festival I was mostly nervous about the fact that like it's a festival tent, so people can just leave whenever they want. Also, it's like a white indie music festival, and they have me on at like 8 p.m. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm not a rock star, this is not gonna be the thing. And it was a huge tent. And I was just like, a flop right now would be performing at this huge festival to like five people. And then I try and reshift it and be like, no, but those five people are there and that's important. But still in my head, I'm like, no, I want this tent to be like full. I want it to be like popping, mm. you know? So I was watching uh, one of your pieces, um, T Commute. Real, I think. Can yeah, you tell? Can you? I don't feel comfortable saying the yeah. two words. So can you say the title? Chani commutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was really, and I, I've listened to it a number of times mm-hmm. the, to, to that piece a number of times. And um, but for today, for some reason, mm. I kept I kept thinking about the violence visited on trans bodies mm-hmm. and how that's connected to the violence visited upon mm-hmm. black bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not really a question, but I wanted to understand more about where you were when you wrote um, The Commutes, which mm-hmm. I'll call them if yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's um, broad, it's broad. No, I love, and I, I think it's so refreshing for someone to link these things. I think what's so dangerous and what I find really hard about being someone that's you know predominantly known for their work around gender is that often people think that that's not also work about race, right? Mm. As if actually transphobia isn't also anti-blackness, right? As if actually at the root of trans misogyny is also at the root of anti-blackness. And what I mean by that is that I'm really bored of thinking that transphobia is this new thing and is this thing that's happening to these new millennial bodies. When actually, when we look at slavery and colonization, the same things that were happening in the way that they monitored black and brown bodies 
let's be real, dark skinned black bodies is rooted in the same essence of transphobia. And what I mean to say is that actually black bodies were being misgendered consistently throughout the time of slavery, right? Like the whole reason that so much castration happened to black men at the arms of white women, right? No one ever talks about that. Is that actually people were looking at black male bodies and saying, this is abnormal. Mm. We need to castrate this and change this. We need to dehumanize this. We need to make this an animal. And the fact that people can't then see that link to how this is rooted in transphobia too, this idea of bodies being abnormal, annoys me. It also, I think it's really weird, really dangerous. I always use these words like weird, silly, abnormal, when really I mean dangerous, that people think misgendering is this new thing that happened to the the white non-binary person in 2010, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, with the dyed blue hair. No shade, T, but it's real. When actually, when we look at the history of colonization and the history of slavery, the reason so many black bodies were having violence towards them during slavery is because they were being misgendered. You know, we were looking at big, black, dark women and saying this person is not a woman because they are dark and fat and black. So then we were locking them up, we were putting them in circuses, we were caging them. And that was on the basis of their gender not being real. So when people see gender violence as something that only happens to transphobia and not something that's happening to all of us, we're really missing the point. Because black men, and this is why I think that actually, this is why I say so much in my work and in my shows, that when we free black and black, particularly dark-skinned, trans and gender non-conforming people, all of us will be free. Mm. And what I mean by that is that I think so much of the violence that is happening through racism is happening because of also gender. These things are just the same. They're two words of a similar thing that's happening because so much violence is happening to black men because of how their gender is being perceived on the streets. Their virility. Yes, they're aggressive. You know, the aggression, the the perceived uh, animalistic nature, all of this is about gender expression. Mm. It's about gender mixed with race. So I I get really freaking annoyed when people put me in this box of a of a gender-based activist or trans activist or whatever that means when I'm like actually you're missing the point because I'm encompassing you're erasing my blackness in that and I actually have so much more it's interesting the commute story and when I read them around because lots of cis well-intentioned black women will say oh you know I don't want to erase the fact that this isn't my experience and I look at them sometimes and what I want to say is like I think we're closer to each other's experience than the trans white trans person I met a minute ago yeah you know yeah and i think yes this book is focusing on my experience but so many of these commutes the feeling of eyes being watched the feeling of like who's really going to protect you when you're hurt happens to black people all the freaking time it made me think of my own behavior within that space which i think is the point of allyship right Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. to take what someone else is serving or saying or what they're and and believing that to be their experience Mm -hmm. and then wondering how do i contribute to that Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so how do i show more compassion on Mm -hmm. the tube Mm -hmm. and it's a very crude example right because it's you know in the commutes you're talking about the world right you're talking about moving and surviving Mm -hmm. through the world Mm -hmm. not just on the tube but I've interpreted that as, you know, I, because I've just really recently discovered that I'm a danger to women. I'm a danger to trans women. Yeah. I'm a danger to white women. I'm a danger to women, to black women, to women, by virtue of me being a man. Mm-hmm. And so I, that, that's a really challenging proposition, I think. And so I think your work continues to challenge me in that way as well to say, is there a look, is there a subconscious bias within me that makes my eye tick or my eyebrows raise? Mm. Like, how Mm. am I carrying myself in this Mm. space? Mm -hmm. Because if this person has to carry themselves a certain way in this space and is constantly Mm. thinking about Mm -hmm. survival, then the least I can do is show some self-awareness in that space too. Also, you know, I think... It's a similar feeling of actually like knowing that we all have the power to have harm done to us and cause harm to others. Oof. Right? Mm. Because I think particularly when you said the white woman and like you're a danger to white women, I was like, but honey, they also a danger to you. Yes, yes, You know, yes, yes, you yes, know? Yes. And I think that's something that also gets mixed up in conversations around privilege. I think the way we talk about privilege at the moment is in these like 
boxes of like, I have this privilege, I have that privilege, I'm oppressed by this way. I'm like, that's not how it works, girl. <laughs> it's situational. Yes. Right? You know, and there's many situations where the white woman can cause so much harm to you and you can do nothing. Mm. You know, we've seen that recently in so many stories of white women calling police on people. White women have an incredible power power mm. to weaponize patriarchy to use it against black men and I think that's something that everyone's really afraid to talk about and it's something that like I kind of used to be afraid to say I used to be so afraid of critiquing white women because um, as someone that's going to be read as having a male body um, I was like what does this mean if the people see me critiquing white women and then I said screw it I've got nothing to lose um, and the truth is is that that's actually like the oldest history in the book is white women causing harm to black men <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I'm just like actually sometimes I'm scared more of Rebecca and Sarah than I am of Stephen <laughs> that's the real tea mm. you know especially in the arts wow it seems like every single like face you meet in the arts is like a well-intentioned quote-unquote white woman <laughs> you know and you have to mind your T's and mind your Q's because it's a different kind of violence I've, I've been in that in yeah. those spaces and the absolute disregard they have for black bodies is really quite astounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How and do you, you move within those spaces? I was going to ask you the same question. Oh, right. <laughs> I felt like I hadn't asked you something. <laughs> How um, do I move in those yeah. spaces? What's your techniques? So when it was with um, a gallery that I won't name, I had to really bite my tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was one of those situational privileges where I had to leverage my position um, and perhaps... Um, my proximity to whiteness, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. to deliver the message I needed to deliver in a very particular and patient way mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. what I wanted to happen. And it was in support of a trans body, mm-hmm. right? I, I felt very adamant yeah. that uh, something should be done in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was met with resistance. Mm. And I thought, now is the time to deploy that. Any privilege I have within this space, mm-hmm, now's mm-hmm. the time to use it. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult because it takes mental acrobatics not yeah. to slap Becky and say, yeah. don't you dare. Yeah, <laughs> right? real. Don't put me in this position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other time had to do with UK Black Pride and um, someone wanted to do an art installation. And it was just like, I couldn't believe I was having this conversation with this white woman <laughs> oh, about okay. putting an art installation in the middle of UK Black Pride. <laughs> on the day of UK Black Pride. Wow. And I but I and I didn't keep my cool that time. No, I real, that was that day. It was a, it was a it was an absolute disrespect. Wow. And I responded to her as such. <laughs> real, sometimes you just got to say, yeah. "Uh-uh, this is some tomfoolery." And 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 I guess that brings us to your presence in these spaces is much more frequent <sighs> than mine. Yeah. Whew. Um, it depends what mood I'm in. My favourite mood that I do with these ones is I troll them. I just troll. Um, and I'm sure never they're not going to be listening to this because they never actually want to listen to anything of depth of us, right? <laughs> you know, they're only interested in me when I'm giving them capital. So they won't be listening to this right now. But if you are Sarah, um, I would love for you to just blank out the next five minutes. Thank you. Um, I'll give you a moment <laughs> to take out your headphones. <laughs> Sarah, I'm giving you a moment to put on your New Balance trainers. And your washed out skinny jeans from Topshop and to go outside to the park. Thank you. Um, I troll them. I love it. It's my favorite. It's my favorite mode because sometimes it's just too much energy to do the mental acrobats. So I'm just like, how am I going to do this? So they ask me loads of questions and I just give them loads of fake answers because, you know, so much of the work I feel when I'm contracted to do work in these white spaces is often the work I'm doing outside of what I'm contracted to do. You know, they've contracted me to perform or to give a talk and to give a lecture, but I'll have a 30 minute conversation before walking to the venue where they want to pick my brains about something. Right. Or, or afterwards when they're crying and they're trying to figure out and place their guilt and that's still part of my job because they're my my boss or the one paying me. Mm, the consolation yeah. of Becky. And, and two years ago I used to, you know, two or so years ago I used to appease that with them. I'd be like, I still have to be professional. And now instead, I'm doing this favorite thing where they'll be like, you know, have you got any books that um, I I feel I can read on this? And I'll say, yeah, um, so there's this book, I don't know if you've heard of it, but Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. (laughs) 
Um, what I think it's really doing is if we see the way that Sprout is treated within the herbology world, it's actually really a, like a good version to talk about anti-blackness and race within our white womanhood. And I'll be like, huh? And I'll be like, you know, how Bellatrix Lestange is catted off. It really reminds me of how trans misogyny is like inflicted on people and they're seen as demons. Um, so really, yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban is some really good reading. And their faces were like, ah, and I'm like, oh, sorry, what's funny? Yeah. And I look at them and I'm like, you asked for my recommendation and I'll just carry on walking. Right. Or they'll be like, hey, you know, I just really wanted to talk to you about this thing, da 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 da. And I'll respond with like, have you heard Ariana Grande's new song? Yes. Like right. I just like completely troll mm. and I get into this fake mode. Sometimes I walk in and I pretend like I'm um um like one of their girls and I'll pretend like I'm like a white girl from the like one of their like bougie like estates or something. And I'll come in in a look like you know for so for me so much um, outfits. It's really interesting talking about drag and transness because obviously rightfully so there's a separation. But for me a lot of the time my outfits and my fashion are actually pulling a joke sometimes. Right. And so sometimes I'll walk into these institutions and I'll purposely dress in like you know a, a vintage pink two-piece that looks like it was bought in some like old-fashioned charity store and I'll wear a fascinator and some sunglasses and put on some long nails and a pink handbag and I'll walk in and be like I'm going to be the parody that you're already like pretending that I am and I'm just going to like completely wow. live up to it and they'll come up to me and they'll be like hi and I'm like hi so good to see you mwah, mwah. you know I just play up and whether or not they know that's a joke or not it would require them to have some depth but I know it is and it means that I leave <laughs> but it means I leave feeling unscarred and I have fun other times you know I think I've gotten so much better at saying no and that's that's. So, so I think we have to go back a little bit because I think you've touched on something that is powerful I mean everything you're saying is powerful <laughs> but it links between the performance and then leaning into the parodies of ourselves yeah. and performing this person people already think we are but as a form of control in yeah. that situation I love it. and as a way of oh I'm, I'm having an epiphany <laughs> and as a way of owning that narrative effectively mm-hmm. right it, it gives it it's it's taking the power back in that situation to say i'm i'm going to i'm going to ex- i'm going to acknowledge it i'm going to accept it i'm going to lean into yeah. it yeah i love it oh wow I think of all the times I shrink myself right that's what we normally do in those spaces I think of why I wear black all the time it's to blend in Mm -hmm. it's to shrink it's because I don't want to draw attention Mm -hmm. to my to my black body Mm -hmm. which is something I only really realized I do recently real dressing black all the time I just thought thought you did it because you look great in it I think that's also true (laughs) but the reason I was attracted to um, black the uniform Mm. of, of black um is because I'm really attracted to pink. Mm-hmm. I'm really attracted to floral. I'm really attracted to fluorescent. You know, yeah. a lot of the colors you wear. Yeah. Um, and I have a very clear idea in my head of how I would dress if I was being mm-hmm. myself all the time. And it's not in all black. But I'm having this. I'm having trouble with the objectification of my body. I'm really struggling with it. And so part of wearing black is protection to say, yeah. you know what? Don't. It's don't just look. black. Don't yeah. look at me. Don't touch me. What do you think your gender would look like if no one was watching? Whoa. I don't know. Okay, you don't have to. I think it would involve heels. Yeah. There's something, I have a pair of heels that I wear at home a lot. Like down the street? Yeah, Yeah. there's just something I think powerful about heels, about Mm -hmm. that elevation, Mm -hmm. about... um, the strut mm-hmm. that you need mm-hmm. to wear heels. Mm-hmm. And every time I've dressed up in drag, I felt like the most powerful version of myself. So there's something there, right? There's something mm-hmm. about that dressing up. I don't know if it's because it's performative or it allows me to t- detach from well ingrained ideas about who I should be in the mm-hmm. world, that there's a, there's a great sense of freedom mm-hmm. and sass and yeah. power that comes with heels and indeed dressing up. And I think I asked that because I, I I think that's what gets lost in the conversation around trans politics that I'm talking about. And I think trans people that are saying things in public often get put into one box. And, yeah, you're and fighting ch- for changing rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I am, and I support all the things that those lot are saying. But I actually think that particularly because I'm gender non-conforming, what I'm saying is, is that I'm not just fighting for trans people or people that use the word trans what I'm saying is is that I would love to imagine a world where you could say one day I want to go out in heels and a wig Mm. and to get as much respect and for it to not mean anything or mean everything right 
And then the next day for you to go out how you are now and for you to say like, I can do these two things simultaneously and it can mean something if I want it to or it can mean nothing. And and I think it's such a shame that so much of the times we feel powerful are when we label them as dressing up when actually they're just another real part of ourselves. (laughs) You know? Like, I I, I, I really, I really often ask people, often not trans people, you know, what would you look like if no one was watching? Because it then brings us to a commonality where it's like, it's not just me that's harassed, being harassed on the street. I think harassment starts before we step outside. Harassment starts as soon as we've edited ourselves. The harassment's already happened. You know, the fact that I'm in this today, you know, for the radio listeners, she's wearing a very (laughs) boring outfit, trousers, no makeup and trainers, is because I couldn't be bothered for harassment today. So yes, I won't be harassed today, but I've already been harassed in the moment I've chosen to get ready. Fuck, that's huge. I think, and I can hear the same, not, you know, similar, in how choosing to wear black or choosing to hide, that violence already happened, mm. to avoid the violence that could happen. And I hate how our definitions of violence require a moment to happen, as if the violence hasn't already started. As if the violence isn't embedded into our embedded brains, as into our the, emotions. You know, people call gender violence something that happens to people's genders as if the violence wasn't gender in the first place. You know, as if the fact that there was innately... If you're trying to make me cry, it's going to work. <laughs> innately, male and female is already going to create violence. So I don't understand when people talk about gender violence saying, gender violence is something that happens to this. It's like, yes, but it already happened when we decided that billions of people could ever fit into two things and be the same. Mm. It was never going to work. It's like the worst plan. It's like a really bad idea to get all these people and to say two things based off things that are here that don't all look the same and aren't all the same and they're going to be somewhat similar in uniform. That makes no sense. Like, it just doesn't make sense. That was the violence. So everything we're doing after that is catching up on the violence that that was already happening. Right, that's the way I see my trans politic. And I think that's what's missing currently in this in this current rise of unfortunately trans misogyny and transphobia, but also rise in public trans voices is I feel like we're just scratching the surface. We're just saying, we need access to this. Yes. We need access to that. And I'm saying, okay, yes. Yes, trans women are women. Yes, trans men are men. Yes, non-binary people are valid and real. But can we go beyond that? Yeah, because you're fighting within the systems and structures for the space that you yeah. deserve within it, yeah. but then also teasing at the edges of our understanding about everything else as well. And the real tea is that I predict it, and I love predicting this on archived things so that when it happens, unfortunately, I can say I told you so, is what happens with this current moment of trans politics and this like current fight for us to be seen as the same is the freaks are going to be left behind. The gender non-conforming, the ones that don't pass, the ones that choose to do transness in a different kind of way are going to be left behind in this current surge of visibility because what we're fighting for at the moment is sameness. We're fighting to be said, we are just as valid as you. And what I'm kind of saying is, yes, true, let's go with that. But actually, we're all just as different. We're all just as fucked up. Right. And actually, I want to say, what if I'm not the same? What if I'm a weirdo? What if I'm a freak? What if I look like an absolute abomination? I should still be deserving of love and care. I shouldn't have to say that I am you in order for you to want me free. You know? Mm. And that goes Audrey Lord as well. Real. Yeah. Real. Yeah. Real. We do not have to be each other to be no, to know that we're fighting the same war. Exactly. Okay. Now this I, I wrote this down and I'm gonna share it with you, mm-hmm. um, even though I'm a bit loath to. Um, but I'm going to say it because earlier you were saying that um, you try not to think of um, what people will think when they're receiving yeah. um, your work. Um, but I do. I hold in my mind queer black boys in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. and think what is yeah. because they are me. I am yeah, them. Yeah, and yeah. I think if I can, I have to focus in that way. So this is what I wrote. I'm a little loath to admit this, but I sometimes feel a bit helpless if I could. I'd walk in front of you, attacking those who try and come for you, but I can't. Mm. And the reason I'm loath to admit that is it's not your problem if I feel helpless. <laughs> and so mm. I feel like it, 
it puts something on you, but I don't know how else to admit or to own the fact that how desperate I feel to be an ally and to make sure that mm. you know that you are mm. um, protected or fought for right in mm. me that that I represent someone who can who wants to protect you because mm. then I also feel like it's very diminishing right do you need protecting I also feel like it's very um, uh, masculine normative or whatever right <laughs> I'm going to protect the trans person hey, honey sometimes I need that <laughs> <laughs> so do you see what I'm getting at yeah. so I, I wonder I, and I guess I ask that for myself because mm. I think you've seen from my messages I'm always trying to like reiterate mm -hmm. um, and, and so I guess w what do you say to those of us who might who want to do more mm -hmm. um and who might feel they don't want to step on your toes? So I feel like two things are being asked because we have a personal relationship and maybe some people listening don't. So I think the response is different depending on like your proximity to someone. Right, like I, I see your protection as asking how I am. You always check in with me. You always check if I'm comfortable doing something. You ask what I'm up to, how I'm feeling. Sometimes for me, that's like the strongest allyship right. in like a lonely world. And so often when people ask me how I'm do how what how to help trans people, I often respond, Do you have trans people in your life? And then they'll be like, Yeah, you know, I've got a few trans friends. I'm like, Okay, like when's the last time you just like asked them how they're doing? Right. And like really listened. When's the last time you like offered to just take them out for some tea? Or like met up with them or like done that. Like sometimes those moves of like quote unquote allyship are the most powerful and immediate because a side effect of oppression is dehumanization. So to create human interactions with people is to counter that oppression, is to say like, actually this world right now is telling you that you're not a human and I'm gonna do everything I can to remind you that I see you as one and that I see you as full and complex. Mm -hmm. So when I'm not asking you, how is this March? I'm not asking you what you think about this current related trans topic. I'm just asking you how you do it. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, hey, do you wanna watch some cartoons? want to like go for a joint or something like that I don't know yeah. you know like trans people need to get high too yeah. um, but, but I think you know what can people do is also you know I think I think the first thing to realise is that like the reason I don't really know how to use the word allyship is because I'm like well our, our, everything's connected so it's just about how to be a better person and I think Oof. that looks that looks different <laughs> that looks different right. to be to different to everyone's situation mm. and I think actually like it it is my business if you are exhausted and depleted. That is my business. I think that's, that's that's the issue, I think, with politics and the way we talk online with people and the way we conduct identity politics is that what we're missing in all of this conversation is like, it is my business if someone, even if I know or don't know them, is sad and depressed because it's telling me that, or is finding this world too much mm. because that's telling me that this world is like not doing something for this one person. And so for me, being a better person means never being complacent. Always realizing that there is something that I should be directing my energy towards that isn't me. Especially, I think, for me, when so much of my work is, is relating around talking about me, photos of me, performing me, I'm like, okay, this is a lot of energy in this world right now directed to me. What am I doing this week to direct that energy back out somewhere else? You know, how much am I earning this week? Do I need all that money? Okay, is there a GoFundMe that I can see? Has a thing popped up? You know, and I'm not regimented, I'm not Mother Teresa, you know, I still have so much freaking work to do. But that is just a couple of things that I take note of. I'm like, you know, am I needing all of this income this week? Can I spare this amount instead of going and getting these packet of cigarettes? Maybe I can do that. That's just how I work, you know, I think it's so personal. It's about being honest. I have like not a ton of time, free time for people emotionally at the moment. So I'm like, okay, how can I still be there? I don't have time to be on the picket lines at the moment. I don't actually want to be in protest at the moment. I can't. But I have some spare cash. But for other people, they might be like, I have no spare cash, but I have free ears. So I'm going to listen to some people. Mm. I think it's about that. I also think it's about punishing yourself. Everyone's always punishing themselves for not doing enough. And often those are the very people that are already doing the thinking. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, what would happen if all these people that were doing nothing were thinking about that? And I often also think it's about infiltration. It's about like, what spaces currently do I inhabit that other people that don't look like me can't inhabit? And how do I bring those people in? Or if those people actually aren't safe to be in there at the moment, how do I bring that voice in there to be like, these people are outside. And right now we don't have any of them here. And they're not listening to us. Whether that's your friendship group, 
or your group of voters. I think voting is such an interesting thing to talk about that. It's like all these people that were like, oh no, yeah, my mum's voting Tory. I mean, don't moan about it. Go home and have like five dinners with your mum and tell her not to vote Tory. Right. You know, like how are we infiltrating these spaces? I walk into these, whenever I'm in these bougie art spaces, whenever I'm, you know, more and more I'm getting invited to these big corporate places. I just start my speech, three, you know, the first three minutes is other people's words. And it's quite like other people. I saying, did you know this is happening? Did you know that this is happening? Did you know that this is happening? I just bombard them to be like, right, you've invited me here and you've probably invited me here because I'm quirky online. You like my fashion sense. I'm light skinned and I'm slim. But let's like look at all these other people that you would never invite in here because they don't talk like me. Wow. You know, I often think what would happen if I wasn't articulate inverted commas. Right? Right? It's, no, I think about that all the time. Right? <laughs> There's people that say so much smarter shit than me but they don't say it in a way like me. So they're never invited to the party. And and yeah, I think it's about how we learn to invite people to the party. And for me, I'm still learning at that. I'm really still trying to get better. It was my goal last year, and I kind of met it in some ways, but I'm still needing to do better. I'm like, Travis, how can you say no more and ensure that they are inviting the two other people? Obviously, if for Black History Month, I'm like not do, refusing to do any university talks unless they allow me to bring two other people and I make it into a panel. And I just said, I'm sorry, unless you've got this budget to pay me, suddenly you can find the budget to pay these two other people. So I'm like, I've already been here. I was at right. this university last year. And I'm, yeah, I'm saying something different, but like, it's easy for you to see me again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What do you hope for? Immediately, I hope for my ability to cope with my brain better. Long term, I hope that we stop punishing people for things that we should be celebrating. But I'm looking at short-term hopes at the moment. And how is your mental health? Uh, is that a very invasive question? Well, it's not the smoothest ask. It's not the smoothest way to ask it. Um, <laughs> um, my mental health. My mental health is um, me using humor to cover up that answer. I think um, you don't have. You also don't have to answer that. Yeah, I think um, it's. It's it's a struggle, you know. I think I'm learning right now, currently in my life. I'm being confronted with the realization that I've always had complex mental health needs. Um, but I think, you know, my problem is, is that I politicize and theorize everything. Um, is that, you know, I, I actually think that mental health is just an extension of oppression and trauma. So I'm like, of course I have complex mental health needs. I live in a complex right. body. Does that admission make it easier to deal with? I think, you know, I'm actually someone, surprisingly, that's, like, really bad at talking about mental health. Despite the fact that, like, there's so much work around, like, it's okay to talk about your mental health. I think, actually, the way I read it is it's okay to talk about a certain type of mental health and that there's other types of mental health that, actually, if we talk about these symptoms and we talk about the ways that's manifesting it's still heavily shunned and stigmatized. I think we use words like anxiety and depression sometimes to avoid specifics. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I find it very easy to tell to people, oh yeah, I'm just suffering from my anxiety. And I know others don't, but I do. Or I say, oh, you know, I'm going through a bit of depression. But actually, like, you know, if I'm being honest and real, is that like, what does that look like when you have severe paranoia? Or what does it look like when your anxiety manifests in needing constant reassurance from people? What does it look like when you're you're seeing things? All these different things that are coded in a very different kind of area, I sometimes feel are harder for us to talk about. And I think that's because I, I see a community that's using... Often I watch, you know, I watch things from the outside a lot. And I watch how things happen to lots of different people. And we're so quick despite using all these things like we're, we're body positive and we're mental health positive, as soon as someone displays any characters that are unruly, we, we throw them out. We, we dispose of people, right? And actually, that's not compatible, I believe, with a pro-mental health visible conversation because mental health sometimes means that we're, we, we're doing things that are uglier. We're seeing uglier sides of ourselves. And I think that's what I'm battling with at the moment is like, how can... I have such a public life that really it was about building space privately to be with select people that I know will hold my ugly. That I don't have to come articulate with them. Mm. 
that I don't have to come with the answers, that I can say, actually, you know what, like, I'm really struggling. And, you know, I'm in therapy, I'm really lucky, I'm in therapy twice a week, and, you know, that's a huge privilege that I can afford at the moment, but it's also a fucking necessity for me at the moment to be right. in there twice a week. And I'm so lucky to have, um, to have found someone to talk these things about, and it's meant that it's changed my whole work. Being in a mental, being, working as busy as I have been, whilst in a breakdown, I'm not in my breakdown anymore, but I was in the middle of a breakdown, and somehow still performing in front of thousands of people, it's the most surreal experience. Mm. Because you're like, I'm a robot, and then as soon as I finish, I'm like, Right. But that's where honesty comes into it, is that now my work, even this interview, this interview would have sounded different seven months ago, because I wouldn't be being real with you right now. Right. But something about having to really care for my mental health has meant that I've, I've got no lies to give now. You know, I'm walking into places, and like, I walked into a meeting at a gallery the other day and they asked how I was. I was like, well, you know, I'm really depressed, but I'm getting there. I would have never said that two years ago. I'm like, right. fine, thank you. How are you? Good to see you. you know, yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. really asking how you are, but my filter's gone. You know, because I, I was kind of like, you know, this work's not worth it if I'm dead at the end of it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's really not. You know, especially since Topshop Gate, you know? Especially since that moment where, like, you're like, oh, wow, this is intense. This is a thing. I'm like, it's not worth it if I'm not being real with people. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm just giving you so many long answers. That was a beautiful answer <laughs> to a very crude question. So, <laughs> And I'm going to leave that crude question in because it's not about perfect. Yes, well, so thank you. not about perfect. That's what I'm struggling with at the moment. In what way? Is letting go of the perfectionist. And it's, I, I just did it last week with Reverend G-Day's conversation. I was so unhappy with my introduction. And I was, it was like midnight and I was like re-editing it and re-editing that, the, my, oh, my voiceover at the beginning. And I was like, I'm not going to release it. I'm just, I'm not going to release it. I'm going to hold it back mm. because it's not perfect. And then an hour later, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is exactly what you're trying to stop yourself doing <laughs> is... It, the work that you, it, it's, I, and I don't know how to unpick it completely yeah. other than to stop it. Yeah. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> yes. It's just to say, <laughs> yes. yeah. I know it's not perfect, but what is the standard I'm holding myself to? And why am I holding myself to that standard? And who, for, who is please? it? Yeah. Who are we trying to Because it's not for me. I'm a perfectionist in so many ways. I used to brag about being perfectionist. Same. And I was like, no, this is like awful. I'm constantly trying to please who? Who? And also, I'm like, actually, I'm so much happier now being like, that's the me they got today. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, I'm really trying to live by that mantra. Like, I love that. That's the me they've that's got the today. That's the me they got today. Wow. I, and I know it's not working all the time, but it's my day-to-day life. It's really helping. I'm, yeah, go. No, sorry. I'm just thinking of the other day when some when I was feeling a bit down and I was at the cafe and this my colleague was like, "What's wrong with you?" And I was like, "I'm not a performing monkey. Sometimes I just don't feel like I have firecrackers coming out of my ass. Is that really? okay?" <laughs> right. And and I yeah. This is it, the me you're getting this today. This is the me you're getting and today. But there's an expectation I think attached to yes. those of us who do things publicly. Yes, just just and. Online, it's different. You know, online, I'll tackle that monkey another time, you know? I'm like, wow, I can't even think about all the ways that we're perpetuating all of this online with the ways that we're... It's a whole other conversation. I'm not really figuring out how to create an authentic person online. I don't think I can. But I'm committing... Yeah, Yeah, right? It's impossible. We've tied it too much up to capitalism, too much up to work, too much up to promotion. It's just like a ship. But what I'm trying to go with the premise is that everyone hopefully knows by this point that what they're seeing online is a version of someone. So then I'm like okay, well, they've seen me in person. Can I commit to them seeing the person that I turned up to be today? Because online, they're seeing the person that is a certain person. Mm. And it's it's not not real. It's me, but it's very much catered and created like we all are doing on Instagram. But let me commit that when someone is seeing me in the flesh, they're just seeing me how I was meant to be that day. Mm. And it's not always happening, but it's happening more. And it's kind of lowering my anxiety. Because I finish and I'm like, oh, what if they didn't like it? What if, and we're like, well, that means they didn't like you. So do you need that person to, to be around you if they didn't like you? It changed my whole thing. I'm like, what if that interview didn't go well? What if that... Well, you were being yourself. Yes. And that means they didn't vibe with you. So then it wasn't meant to happen. Hmm. And then I'm like, okay. 
Hello, Zen Travis. It's weird. <laughs> Everyone is like, Travis, what the hell is going on? And you I'm know, uh, the thing, thing about being, you know, like up and down is meaning like, catch me next day when I'm like, ah! Right. But there are these moments of Zen that I'm really holding at the moment. It's yeah. all linked, right? Yeah. It, the, the mental health, the performance, the performative nature of yeah. our lives, yeah. and also this kind of, what is effectively a very radical response to the perfectionist and to the performance, which is to say, here I am. Here I am. Here I am, girl. Here I am. And that's actually the most real we can get, <laughs> yeah. right? Is to say, this yeah. is the version of me you're getting today, which is just the, set my body on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and... There's so much freedom in that. So much freedom in that. I hope to continue to practice it, you know? Um, and not be as worried as, as, how are these people perceiving me? Because, girl, there's going to be always hundreds of people that are wanting to critique us. But why do we focus on that? I want to focus on the people that are loving me really hard. Yeah, but how do you do that? Because I was at an event um, a couple weeks ago. And, yeah, I had a very difficult and triggering run-in. And it, my mind went landslide. And I just crumbled mentally. And so how how do you do that? Um, do you do it? Yeah, I well, I crumble too. I have a friend, both of us in, in these kind of worlds that have that happen to them more than often. We have a planned response that we've written down to read to ourselves when it's over. Because I think sometimes when it happens, you're like, damn, everyone's thinking this about me. Everyone thinks that, oh my God, I'm never going to work. I'm never going to do this. Everyone's thinking, I need to... And I'm like, this was one person. And I need to go back and read all the messages from all the people that are seeing me in other ways. But also, I started calming myself by realizing that anytime we put ourselves out in the open, we are opening ourselves up to unfortunately people ready to tear us down. And what helps me, which probably isn't the right response, I sometimes look at this as saying that we have been taught to tear each other down. We've been taught that only one of us could succeed. And we've Mm. been taught to always look for the instant flaws in people. And when I hold that in, I'm like, okay, I'm not hurting right now. This person's hurting. This person's the one that's hurting. And and, and I wish that we, I, I, you know, the thing I preach the most because we're all two seconds away from a call out. You know, that's what I say to everyone. We're all two degrees separation from being called out online. Heck, there's pages about from every corner of different politics saying why I'm bad at what I do. And I turn around and I was like, it's funny because they're assuming that I've said I'm perfect. And right. again, it comes back to perfection. I'm like, hey, what would it look like if we saw everybody as the potential to grow and change? What would it look like if when someone messed up, that we care about. This is when it comes down to care. If this person doesn't care about you, they're going to call you out in a certain way. If this person cares about you, what does that look like? Right. And what does it look like when we go from the premise that people aren't disposable? That the mistakes we make can always have restorative aspects to them. As soon as people get anywhere, we're waiting for them to make a mistake Mm. before. And I'm just about saying, you know, that's boring. I'm so bored of that. Bored, next, move. I'm like, yes, I'm going to fall. And hopefully you're going to watch me get back up. And hopefully you didn't push me. God, like, wouldn't it be this nice to realise that people naturally fall off things and we don't have to push them? <laughs> That's a bit dark. Like, I'm going to naturally trip up. I trip up all the time. I'm in Leave heels. it to me. I'm in heels, like, four out of seven days a week. I'm going to trip up by myself, girl. You don't need to push me. <laughs> so for me, watching you perform and indeed sitting in conversation with you <laughs> is electrifying and I want others to be so electrified. Uh-huh. Do you have something coming up that people yeah. can go to? August 17th um, at Hackney Showroom, I'm doing a show with two other gender non-conforming artists of colour, um, Alok Ved Menon from the States, who's like internationally renowned and also uh, Malik Nashad Sharp, who's like an incredible black creative that's just cutting edges in so many ways. And it's at Hackney Showroom, it's on my website, it's everywhere, August 17th. I really recommend coming because it's a beautiful chance to see three really different ways of presenting black and brown transness. To close, what's your message for queer black people around the world? That we are have always been the answer and have always been the gift.
Travis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I don't need to go to therapy this week. I said there is pride in my bite. Lipstick smudge on neck. Vampire teeth in. Are you afraid you will turn into me? I said there is pride in the bashing. Bashing of my back. Bash back to face. Imagine fist into your jeer. Are you afraid you will turn into me? There is pride in the way I yell, who you calling faggot? What the fuck are you looking at? Did you not know that us freaks have mouths? Are you afraid you will turn into me? I said there is pride in my heels wandering. Forceful stomps on grounds, pushes into knees that stops. Who knew fear could look this fierce? Are you afraid you will turn into me? There is pride in my flexibility. To go from death drop to dancing with death It is your loss, you only hear my fingers click Are you afraid you will turn into me? You tell me of pride in rainbows In flags and flat stomachs, muscles and chests Pride in our celebration, in unity, in glee And I spit out my pride in rebellion The pride in saying, I am a freak And you cannot fuck with me Travis Alabanza is a writer, performer, and artist based in London, and I encourage you to explore their work at TravisAlabanza.com. And listen, when the opportunity presents itself, you absolutely must watch Travis live. You will be electrified. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to UK Black Pride and Blackout UK and to you, the listeners. Busy Being Black is for us, by us, and I hope you continue to send me messages of support and feedback. Also, remember that supporting Busy Being Black doesn't cost any money. Your retweets, shares, comments, ratings, and reviews are free and go a long way in helping amplify the voices of queer black talent in conversation here. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black grammy nominee producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass, busy-being-black beats. Ashe. you study an animal so elusive it's known as the ghost of the mountain for researchers at the snow leopard trust the answer is artificial intelligence by using microsoft ai to analyze thousands of remote camera images for snow leopards a task that used to take days is now done in minutes so researchers have more time to save this threatened species see how microsoft ai helps us protect our environment at microsoft.com forward slash ai